This morning we're going to um, look at a text that may be familiar to many of you. It's a story Jesus tells that has um, disturbed many over the years. The precursor to the story is well known. We start in Matthew chapter 15, verse 16, then we'll go down to 21 and read all the way through chapter 20, verse 16. Behold, a man came up to him, to Jesus, saying, Teacher, what good deed must I do to have eternal life? Jesus said to him, If you would be perfect, go sell what you possess, give it to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come follow me. When the young man heard this, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. Jesus said to his disciples, Truly I say to you, only with difficulty will a rich person enter the kingdom of heaven. Again, I tell you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. When the disciples heard this, they were greatly astonished, saying, Who then can be saved? But Jesus looked at them and said, With man this is impossible, but with God all things are possible. Then Peter said in reply, See, we have left everything to follow you. What then will we have? Jesus said to them, Truly I say to you, in the new world when the Son of Man will sit on His glorious throne, you who have followed Me will also sit on twelve thrones judging the twelve tribes of Israel. Everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or lands for My name's sake will receive a hundredfold and will inherit eternal life. But many who are first will be last, and the last first. For the kingdom of heaven is like a master of a house who went out early in the morning to hire laborers for his vineyard. After agreeing with the laborers for a denarius a day, he sent them into his vineyard. And going out about the third hour, he saw others standing idle in the marketplace and said to them, You go into the vineyard too, and whatever is right I will give you. So they went. Going out again about the sixth hour and the ninth hour, he did the same. And about the eleventh hour, he went out and found others standing. And he said to them, why do you still stand here idle all day? They said to him, because no one has hired us. He said to them, you go into the vineyard too. And when evening came, the owner of the vineyard said to his foreman, call the laborers and pay them their wages, beginning with the last up to the first. When those hired about the eleventh hour came, each of them received a denarius. Now when those hired first came, they thought they would receive more, but each of them also received a denarius. And on receiving it, they grumbled at the master of the house, saying, These last worked only one hour, and you have made them equal to us, who have borne the burden of the day and the scorching heat. But he replied to one of them, Friend, I am doing no wrong. Did you not agree with me for a denarius? Take what belongs to you and go. I choose to give to this last worker as I give to you. Am I not allowed to do what I choose with what belongs to me? Or do you begrudge me my generosity? So the last will be first and the first last. In the fall of 1946, a couple was in church. Their son had died in the Battle of the Bulge, and both of the parents agreed that they would give $200 as a memorial gift in memory of their son who died. 
When the presentation was made, a woman was sitting in a pew next to her husband and she poked him and said, how about if we do that for our son as well? Her husband was indignant. What? Our son didn't die? He fought in the war, but he didn't die. And the woman said, that's my point. Let's give it because he didn't die. Years ago, I heard about a druggist who listened to a call that was made by a teenager on his cell phone. Teenager said, hello, sir, I'm calling to see if you need anyone to uh, take care of your lawn. Oh, you don't? You already have a lawn specialist? If you don't mind me asking, how is he doing? Oh, he's doing a great job. Okay. Thank you very much. He hung up and the druggist said, son, I'm sorry you didn't get the job. He said, no, I've got the job. I was just checking to see how I was doing. (laughs) Forty years ago, Ed Koch became mayor of New York at 53. Ed Koch was popular. In fact, when he was reelected four years later, he had 75% of the vote. He had both Republican and Democratic uh, committees behind him. He called himself a liberal with sanity. Every day he used to ride the subway and occasionally he'd stop at a subway stop and he'd ask, how am I doing? How am I doing? And people would answer. Someone said, as a political shtick goes, that was brilliant because voters received it with humor, but Koch always accepted what they said with seriousness because he really wanted to know, how am I doing? This morning we come to this text in Matthew 19 where a guy comes to Jesus and says, in effect, how am I doing? He says it this way, teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus answers a doing question with a doing answer. And Matthew says the man walks away sorrowfully. And as he walks away, Jesus says, I tell you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. And over the years, that statement has received a lot of ink. But it's not that statement that attracts me this morning. It's more the statement Peter makes. Matthew says, Peter turns to Jesus and he says, See, we've left everything for you. What then will we have? In other words, how are we doing? Now think of it. For over two years, Peter has walked with Jesus. He has seen and he has heard that gaining the whole world and losing your soul isn't a very good idea. Over two years, he's seen that there is no real change that a person can make in their life down to the soul level. Unless God changes you, Peter has seen, you're not going to be changed. One time Harry Callis, who used to be the longtime voice of the... Philadelphia Phillies was describing Gary Maddox. He said it this way, here's a man who's really turned his life around. He used to be depressed and miserable. Now he's miserable and depressed. (laughs) And really, that's about as good as we can do. There is no real change unless God changes us. And Peter knows it. He's seen real change. He's seen a guy named Simon who's a leper who Jesus cleanses. He's seen a woman who's been bleeding for 11 years and she's gone to all doctors and and she's spent all of her, all the money and, and Jesus simply says the word and she's healed. Peter's seen that. 
Peter's seen Jesus heal the blind and heal the lame. He's, he's seen this rich man walk away and it blows his mind because he believed what every Jew did, which was if you're rich, God is on your side. And he says to Jesus, how about me? How am I doing? And while many think that's a rhetorical question, Jesus doesn't. For he answers this question not only prosaically, but he answers it parabolically. That means he not only gives a sentence or two explanation, he tells a story. You know, I knew a man years ago who said to me, looked me right in the eye, and he said, I can never become a Christian because of that story Jesus told. If Jesus is like this, I want nothing to do with him. Now fortunately, near the end of his life, I think he did become a Christian. Spent a lot of time with him. But it's this story that was his stumbling block. And it's interesting, Matthew is the only gospel writer to tell us this story. It seems as though the other gospel writers don't want anything to do with it because it's a hot potato. And that's sad because it's one of the greatest stories Jesus ever told. Because here in this story, Jesus answers the question to every Christian, how are you doing? So let's dig in. First of all, notice the inheritance. Look at verse 29 of chapter 19. Everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father, mother, children, land, for my name's sake, will receive a hundredfold and will inherit eternal life. Years ago, Donald Gray Barnhouse lived in Brussels, Belgium. And where he was living was 80 minutes from where he went to work. So one day, he was walking down the street near where he went to work, and he saw a sign, Room for Rent. So he knocked on the door, and this French-speaking woman answered, and he asked her in French, may I see the room? And she said, certainly in French, and took him around, and after he had seen it, he said, I'll take it. I want this room. In 10 days, I want to move in. The woman said to him in French, well, I'd like for you to rent it, but how do I know you're honest? How do I know you'll be back in 10 days? Because if you're not back in 10 days, I'll lose 10 days of advertising. And then she said something in French he didn't know. And so he turned and left and went to work, and he asked one of his colleagues, who was French, what does this mean? And he told his friend the phrase. And his friend looked at Barnhouse in the eye and said, Ephesians chapter 1. And Barnhouse went and read the end of Ephesians chapter 1, and he read these words, In Him you also were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the down payment on our inheritance. In French, in the French Bible, it's the same phrase, down payment, that's used there in Ephesians chapter 1. So Barnhouse went back with haste to the woman's house, gave her a hundred francs, which was enough to make the down payment. Now that is what Paul is saying is true for every Christian. When you have been received by Christ, you receive not something based on your doings, but based on 
who He has made you. You see, God never gives us a wage. He gives us an inheritance. And what Paul is saying, the inheritance now is the presence of the Holy Spirit. It's only a down payment on what you will receive when you're with Him. Second, notice not only the inheritance, notice the intention. Look at verses 1 and 2 of chapter 20. For the kingdom of heaven is like the master of a house who went out early in the morning to hire laborers for his vineyard. After agreeing with the laborers for a denarius a day, he sent them into his vineyard. Now, notice none of these laborers apply for the job. In Jesus' day, laborers were the lowest rung on the economic ladder. They were way under household servants. They had no economic privilege, no social status. They lived hand-to-mouth, always subject to the whim of the marketplace. In fact, we see this because in this story, Jesus says that the Master hires some of them who have hung around all day to the 11th hour. To say that their lives are tenuous is an understatement. They're not bargainers. They're beggars hoping for someone to come their way and hire them. And notice what the Master says. I will pay you whatever is right. 200 years ago in Olney, England, a tombstone was erected. And on that tombstone we read these words. John Newton, clerk, once an infidel and libertine, a servant of slavers in Africa, was by rich mercy of Jesus Christ preserved, restored, pardoned, and appointed to preach the faith that he so long labored to destroy. You know who wrote that? John Newton. The same man who wrote over 300 hymns. The same man who wrote perhaps the most famous hymn of all, Amazing Grace. A man who died at 82, never ceased to marvel at the mercy and grace that changed his life. In fact, wherever he spoke the gospel, it was always pointed in the direction of grace. Shortly before his death, a man came to Newton and said, why don't you consider retiring because your mind is failing? Newton said, what? Shall an old African blasphemer stop while he can still speak? My memory is nearly gone, but I remember two things. I am a great sinner, and Christ is a greater Savior. Third, notice the incredulity. Look at verse 11. And on receiving the denarius, they grumbled, saying, These last worked only one hour, and you've made them equal to us, who have borne the burden of the day in the scorching heat. Now remember who these people are. They are former beggars, they are laborers, they're hired hands. They're ones who are out in the vineyard, not because of their work ethic, but because of the generosity of the Master. And you know what fries them? You know what really ticks them off? The Master's generosity. They say it's not fair. We worked longer, we worked harder, we did more than these people do, did. It's not fair that you pay us the same. And you know what the master says? You contemptuous pigs. I never want to see you again. He doesn't say that. Look what he says. He calls them friends. 
The word he uses there in Greek, heterios, literally means comrade and clansman. What this master is saying to these laborers is, you are just like me. I fully identify with you. He calls them friends. They call him enemy. He calls them friends. These are ones to whom he's extended his generosity by hiring them in the first place. They feel a pity party put upon while he's focused on his grace. If you have a few years on you, you remember the confirmation hearings of Clarence Thomas to the Supreme Court. I mean, that was riveting television. Anita Hill's charges against him over a decade ago. And under the glaring lights of the Senate, he held up well. And when the vote came, it was split upon, uh, on party lines, and he was confirmed to the Supreme Court to take Thurgood Marshall's seat. After he'd been on the bench for a bit, he was interviewed. And the interviewer said, how did you get through that? How were you able to endure the withering assault? And Clarence Thomas said, I prayed a prayer every day that was written two centuries ago by a man who was maliciously maligned and scorned by friends and foe alike. Listen to this prayer. O Jesus, meek and humble of heart, hear me. From the desire to be esteemed, deliver me, Jesus. From the desire of being loved, deliver me, Jesus. From the desire of being praised, deliver me, Jesus. From the desire of being preferred to others, deliver me, Jesus. From the desire of being approved, deliver me, Jesus. From the fear of being humiliated, deliver me, Jesus. From the fear of being despised, deliver me, Jesus. From the fear of suffering rebuke, deliver me, Jesus. From the fear of being forgotten, deliver me, Jesus. From the fear of being ridiculed, deliver me, Jesus. From the fear of being suspected, deliver me, Jesus. That others may be loved more than I, Jesus, grant me the grace to desire it. That others may be chosen and I set aside, grant me the grace to desire it. That others may be praised and I unnoticed. Grant me the grace to desire it. That others may be preferred to me in everything. Grant me the grace to desire it. That others may become holier than I. Provided I become as holy as I should. Jesus, grant me the grace to desire it. <clears throat> At least at this point in my life, I know of no greater prayer. It's called the litany of humility. And no matter where I go, no matter who I hear from, no matter what the struggle a person is facing, I believe if you and I pray that prayer every day, it will change us.
they are angry with a master who gives them exactly what he said he would. Then fourth, notice the instruction. Look at verse 14. Take what belongs to you and go. I choose to give this last worker as I give to you. You know, when you ask most people what God's like, they say He's love. But then you say, well, what does that mean? How do you know? How do you know He's love? And most people are silent. You know, the Bible's never silent. It always describes love, the love of God in terms of grace. When I was in college, I had a sociology professor who was rather, rather young. He told the story that years before he had been at a relative's house and had dinner. And he was a few years older than his cousin named Paul, who was 16. Paul wasn't driving yet. So he said to Paul after dinner, how about taking a ride with me? And Paul jumped at the chance. They got into the car. They went out into the country. They were going over a country hill. And they collided head-on with another vehicle. Stan suffered a crushing, a crushed ankle, a broken leg, and a broken jaw. He was in intensive care for three days. He was in emergency surgery overnight. And after three days, no one had told Paul that, or told Stan that his cousin Paul was dead, but after three days they did. He said, when I finally heard the news that my cousin was dead, I, I wished it had been me. And then when I heard that Paul's parents were coming to see me, I really wished it had been me. Incredible waves of fear and foreboding came over me. My mouth was wired shut. My tongue was swollen. I couldn't talk. All I could do was lay there when my aunt and uncle entered the room. When they approached the bed, they had a smile on their face, and I couldn't believe it. What's there to smile about? My aunt came over and took my hand and she bent down and she said, Stan, you are now our son. You're our son now. Stan said, those words I'll never forget. They're words I never expected or deserved. Those words were words of pure grace woman turns to her husband and says, how about if we give $200 for our son who didn't die? You know why she says that? Because she's grateful. Because in some small way, she comprehends the degree to which the Lord has been gracious to her. In some real way, she knows that prayer that Clarence Thomas prayed. In fact, that prayer of humility has become her prayer. If somebody were to ask her, how are you doing? She'd be able to answer the way we ought to be able to answer, the same way those laborers are doing. We're doing far better than any of us deserve. Because it's not based on what we've done. It's based on what He's done and who He's made us to be. It's nearly Independence Day. (laughs) If you're a Christian, you've experienced independence in a way that no unsaved American can ever know. 
So think about that. Amen.